The scripture for today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. Would you please stand with me to honor the word of God? The parable of the dishonest manager. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into internal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is in another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you may be seated. In Leade's prayer, he uh, mentioned uh, my participation this week in a uh, conference at uh, Nashville, North Carolina, which was the CEF International Conference. And it's my pleasure to be able to lead a, a prayer gathering for folks from all over the world. And I'm telling you, it was a rich experience. In fact, some of you have come to a Fresh Encounter service before, and I've told you that I want to help you know how to pray like most people in the world pray. Because when you get to heaven, I don't want you to be embarrassed. And I just, I, 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 I want you to know how right that is that I'm telling you that because I got to experience that uh, fresh and new during this uh, particular uh, prayer summit. It was frankly probably the most exciting life-giving prayer uh, gathering I've ever been in, have the opportunity to lead. In fact, it was so exciting, there were some Korean people who were uh, praying um, up in a balcony, and I sent Don Bartimus, who was with me, with my iPhone, and I said, go up there and record that, because I want the folks at College Park just to see what's going on. So here's a video from that particular event.
So I just want you to know that uh, praying and seeking God's face is something that it's, it's important for us to do because the whole world who knows the name of Christ does this. And uh, not just to seek him privately, but to seek him corporately. In fact, at the end of one of a little seminar where I taught on the subject of worship-based prayer, there's a wonderful woman from Africa who said, Pastor, with respect, um, singing, using our Bibles, and praying together, this is not new. Our church does this all the time. We do this. Uh, this is how we always pray. And uh, and that was a little bit of a rebuke. And uh, and I understood exactly what she was saying, trying to help us understand what it means to really seek the face of, of God in our own culture and in our own uh, language. So I just wanted to share that with you so you can get a sense of what God's doing. He's doing some amazing things around the world and some great things that are happening, not only in our country, but also in other places around the planet. So continue to pray for God's church and pray together, pray often, and seek God's face. Well, let's um, get to work here on Luke 16 today. Father in heaven, we um, come today and ask you to give us guidance, understanding, um, a real clarity on what this passage means. It's a, it's a challenging one with uh, lots of exegetical turns in it, and I pray that we'd really come to understand what money says and how money can really speak, and that you'd give us just your heart and mind as we uh, think through what it is that you're trying to say us today, say to us today by your word. So give us ears to hear. Open our hearts to this rather personal subject about our giving. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the way back from this trip in uh, North Carolina, I was on a plane and seated next to me was a woman and then across the aisle was another woman and they apparently knew each other from a conference that they were at. And I couldn't help but overhearing their conversation. That uh, made me smile and it also made me think. The woman seated next to me apparently noticed that the lady across the aisle had a very large ring on her finger. And she said, wow, that, that's a ring. And then the woman across the aisle began to tell her about it. She said, well, yeah, thank you. Um, this, this, what it was, was three different diamonds that had been put together in one setting. And the, the, the main one apparently was, was two carats. I mean, it was a big ring. I couldn't help but kind of peek ahead, you know, look. So <laughs> it's a little curious what was going on over there. And so she, um, she said, yeah, the first diamond, uh, was my engagement, uh, ring. And we had that set here. The second one was uh, given to me at our 10th anniversary. And the third one was given to me at our 25th anniversary. She said, yeah, we've been married 30 years. To which the lady next to me said, you've been married to the same man for 30 years? <laughs> I was like, wow, that's interesting. And uh, then the, the lady across the aisle said, yeah, I have. And then she said, and then she said but let me tell you, I earned this ring. <laughs> and I smiled and I thought, and it illustrates a really important point. Because suddenly her ring changed in my mind. Before of thinking about the beauty of being married 30 years, it suddenly appeared very clearly that what she had on her finger was actually kind of a payment, a debt, if you will, something that she earned, something that her husband owed her, something that um, she had by virtue of her faithfulness to him, and probably because of dealing with his intolerableness, had somehow earned these three diamonds. It illustrates, I think, this point that true giving comes from gratitude, not guilt. True giving comes from love, not a debt. Last week we talked about the subject of tithing and I tried to show you that voluntary, heartfelt, gratitude-based giving is more foundational and is more basic than tithing. I see tithing as a model for giving, 
But I don't see tithing as the model for giving. Because in the Old Testament, it seems that tithing is closely linked to what amounted to spiritual taxation. So, all that said, for the record, I don't have a problem with you using 10% as a guideline for giving. I think it could be a valuable way to teach your kids how to give. I think it could be a good starting point, a good way to think about giving in general. But I get really nervous, really nervous, when people begin to talk about tithing as if it's a debt. As if it's the minimum requirement. As if it's a minimum obligation or something that we owe to God. Rather, I, I think what we should instead is take the approach that the Apostle Paul does in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7 where he says, Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, how and why we give is really, really important. And I'm going to suggest to you today something that we should regularly think about, pray about, and wrestle with. So this morning, our text from Luke 18 is going to show us another reason um, why money is so important. And Jesus is going to give us a parable about why it's important to think through how we manage our money. And essentially, it comes down to this particular reason. It is that money speaks. We may not like it, but the fact of the matter is that money says something. It it communicates something. It, it says a lot, frankly. And today from this parable, we're going to try and figure out what it is that Jesus is saying to us. And for that matter, what is it that our money actually says? So we're going to look first at the story, this parable, then the message. And then I want to draw a conclusion about one particular issue that I think is the predominant hurdle that people have to get over in order for them to be free to give. So first, the story. Once again, we see here that Jesus uses a parable to make an important point. And hopefully you'll remember that a parable is a story that Jesus uses in order to sometimes give us some pretty hard-hitting messages, some content that we might not normally receive. And this particular parable is extremely challenging. In fact, one commentator says that this is a hornet's nest of exegetical problems. (laughs) And the reason he says that is because the ethics of the people involved are not very clear. So the servant is described as dishonest, but in what way was he dishonest? How does he manifest his stewardship? And is he, why is he commended by the rich man. So let me explain the, the nature of how this parable goes. In verse 1, the stage is set by telling us that there was a rich man and then a manager who was in charge of taking care of the rich man's estate. Somehow the rich man learned that the manager was not managing his property very well. And we're not told exactly what it happened here, but it's clear that he wasn't stealing from him but rather that there was some sort of mismanagement that was taking place. And so, according to verse 1, the rich man calls the manager um, to give an account of what he has done. And um, we, we find this in, uh, in verse 2. He says, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So whatever he had heard, apparently it was substantial enough for him to pre-decide that he was going to fire the manager. So he calls him in and says, what is this that I've heard about you? Turn in an accounting of what you have done for me, and you're done. Then upon hearing this, the manager becomes afraid because he knows that if he loses this job, he's going to be in an unenviable position. In fact, verse 3 says that. The manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to, to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. 
So he knows he's stuck. Verse 4, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. This is really important. This is a key to understanding the parable. What happens here is the manager anticipates that the actions of the rich man in firing him are going to leave him destitute. He, he, he can't work in terms of doing physical labor, and he won't beg. And so therefore, he looks forward, ahead, and he sees a problem that is coming. He's going to lose his job, and therefore he decides to do something in order, according to verse 4, so that people may receive me into their houses. In other words, he's going to do something that will have a payoff in the future. So the key to understanding this parable is this particular formula. The the manager anticipates something that's going to happen. He then will make an investment or will deal with a short-term loss, we'll see that in a second, with the anticipation of a future benefit. So what does he do? Well, he attempts to settle the outstanding accounts of his master by cutting them and thereby ingratiating himself with those who owed the man money. Verse 5, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? Verse 6, he said, a hundred measures of oil. He, this is the manager, said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. So he took a hundred dollar debt, cut it in half, just give him 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. So you owed a hundred to one. He said 50, you owed a hundred, write 80. Now, the manager's actions are hard to interpret because the question is, did he act dishonestly here? Is he called the dishonest manager because of this action or because of his poor stewardship? That's again part of the exegetical challenge. Well, some people view the manager as though he acted unscrupulously and thereby was stealing from his master. In other words, if these people owed the master a hundred and the servant then simply cut the losses, so to speak, and just took fifty, thereby maybe doing this out of spite for the master. But the challenge is that in verse 8, if you skip ahead, it's very clear that the master commends the servant for his shrewdness. So certainly the master wouldn't commend the servant for his shrewdness if he was somehow creating loss for him or further being dishonest in his uh, management of his possessions. I think there's a better option. I think the better solution is that the manager, on top of what was owed to the rich man, had put on top of that some level of interest or commission. In fact, I think he probably was charging exorbitant interest rates, which then led people to tell the master the fact that he was charging this exorbitant interest rates, and that may very well have been, been the thing that caused him to lose his job in the first place. So when he calls in the debts, what, he, what the master is actually owed is what he collects, and then what he cuts out is what he was to receive. If it's understood this way, then verse 8 makes sense, because then the master commends him for being shrewd. It seems unlikely that the master would praise the manager for stealing from him, but rather it makes sense that if the manager is in fact cutting himself out of the deal or reducing his commission, that thereby he would be solving two problems. One, the the, the amount due to the master, and also the benevolence that he would then earn by virtue of his reduction in the debt from other people. So therefore, the conclusion, I think, is the manager acted wisely because what he did is he anticipated the future and he made a decision that initially caused a loss for himself. He had less money than what he could have received, but at the same time, he did that with the hope of a future benefit or return. This is a key, I think, to understanding the parable. And it's a simple formula that we know even in life, and it's this, that short-term loss 
sometimes needs to be embraced in order for long-term gain. In fact, that's a principle of investing, isn't it? I mean, if if you're going to invest in anything, first you have to give the money away. It has to leave your checkbook, has to go out in order for it to do anything for you. And this is why Jesus in Luke 16.8 says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their generation than the sons of light. What is he saying there? He's saying that in order to make money in the future, you have to decide that you're initially going to part with some of it, and people in the world know this to be true. That it just makes sense. It's often common business. In order to make a business grow, you've got to invest money. If you want to make something grow in a stock market, for instance, you've got to release money out of your checkbook. Otherwise, if you sit in the sidelines, it will never grow in a particular fund. For instance, this week, one of the largest um, and fastest growing initial public offerings or IPO happened when LinkedIn on Thursday hit uh, Wall Street and uh, revenue in uh, one day grew to 30 times its annual um, overall revenue package, even though forecasters are suggesting that they're going to lose money by the end of the year. And why did an investor jump in? Well, an investor parted with the money in the hope that if I give this money to this initial public offering, it will grow and it will pay me back a larger return. So the idea is I'm going to lose money out of my checkbook in the hopes that it will grow. It's a fundamental concept. I have to give it away in order for it to grow. So if you don't make the decision to let the money go, it will never grow. It's as simple as that. So all investments work like this. You take a short-term loss in order to achieve a long-term gain. This is what you do every time that you invest in a 401k. You decide we're not going to live on everything that I make. Instead, we're going to take a certain portion and we're going to save this. You do the same thing for your college kids' college education. You decide we're going to reduce our overall living so we can put money aside. We're not going to spend everything that we earn because we want to have it available for later. So you invest for the future rather than buy too big of a house. You save for retirement rather than eat out every week. It's as that it's that simple. Life works this way and Jesus says people in the world get this. They do this. In fact, he's using this shrewd manager as an example to show us that secular worldly people understand a basic formula in life which is short-term loss can produce long-term gain. That's the point of the parable. Now, Jesus turns it. Look at verse 9. And here we see the message. The parable turns when Jesus says, And I tell you. And now we're going to see the three things that money says, or the three ways that money speaks. Here's the first. The first we see here is that money shows us what we are really living for. Jesus says in verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Meaning that Jesus now references this eternal dwelling, this eternal reality, this eternal wealth. He plays off the story of the manager who ingratiated himself to others by virtue of his personal loss, his short-term loss with the hope of future return. And Jesus urges the same type of shrewd spiritual behavior by those who know about an eternal kingdom, an eternal wealth, that they would thereby endure short-term loss in order to achieve long-term, that being eternal value. Jesus says that this kind of mentality just makes sense. That the disciples should anticipate the future, like this shrewd manager did. They should endure short-term loss, like the manager did, 
in order to invest in long-term eternal wealth. And so what Jesus is doing here, again, like he's done so many times before, is to link the earthly use of money with eternal returns. And this is the point of the parable, that Jesus calls his followers to invest wisely. To not just live for the short term, but to realize that there needs to be a long-term horizon. Jesus, in effect, is saying that we should look at the incredible value, the eternal value of what's at stake here, and remember that if you don't invest... You won't get a return. 2 Corinthians 9.6, listen to this. Paul, echoing the same concept, says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. In other words, if you've got a bag of grass seed at your house and your lawn doesn't look very good even though it's rained and you want more grass seed, you want more grass to grow, there's a direct relationship between how much seed you put down and how much grass you're going to grow. So if you, if you, if you don't want to waste your seed and you're like, you want to hoard your seed and, and I bought this seed at Lowe's and it's kind of expensive, I don't want to spread a lot of it out, so I'm just going to spread a little bit, then you have no one to blame but yourself if you have a little bit of grass. There's a direct relationship between sow a little seed, grow a little lawn. Sow a lot of seed, the potential is therefore to grow a larger lawn. So the question comes back to really what's important to you. Do you want to hoard? Do you love seed? Or do you love grass? What's the purpose of the seed in the first place? Is it to hoard so you feel like, wow, look at all my seed? When the reality is, we don't live for seed, we live for grass. You know what I mean? Not literally, okay, just to be clear. I want to feed the idol of some of your hearts. But the the reality is that we have this treasure that we've been given, but this treasure was not meant to simply be held onto. And every day we make financial decisions that are directly tied to what we value. Do you value seed or do you value grass? To take it in the parable, do you value eternal wealth or do you value short-term wealth? And every day you make decisions. Every day I make decisions based upon what we value. And money shows us what we're really living for. It's uncomfortable at times, but it shows us what you spend money on is what you really value. And you make decisions every day that I like certain things and that's worth 10 bucks. This isn't worth 10 bucks or this is worth 100 bucks. And and we develop this perspective of how we spend money based upon our perceptions of what things are really worth. For example, a couple weeks ago, I was sending a text to one of our elders about something, and he sent me a text back, and he was like, what in the world? What phone are you using? Because, you see, I only have 250 texts a month in my plan, and um, I added that to my plan a number of years ago. It's five bucks a month for, um, you know, for 250 texts. And I was getting towards the end of my, my contract window, and I knew I was tight on my text. And so my boys have showed me that there is a, a free texting app that you can get, and so it just sends it through. But the challenge is that it gives you a different phone number. So when my number showed up on his phone, it had the area code from the state of Idaho. And he was like, what are you, why is your phone from Idaho? You know, I'm like, no, no, no it's because I got this, this texting app and I'm just about at my limit for 250 texts. And he was like, Mark, how much, how much does it cost to add more text to your plan? And I was like, well, um, it's like five bucks more a month. And he was like, why are you not adding like your texting plan? I'm like, cause I don't want to spend five bucks a month on more text. He's like, you are so cheap. I can't even believe it. The reality is, though, when my wife and I go to Starbucks and she wants her skinny chai latte for three eighty-five, I buy the puppy all day long. You know why? Because I love my wife more than text. That's why, right? I think a chai latte is far more worthwhile than 250 extra texts a month, especially when I know I can get those texts for free and I'm not the only one who lives this way, right? 
I know I'm not. Every day you make decisions. That's valuable. Let's buy that. We're not going to spend any money on that. That's why you have arguments in your home. And then some of you have figured out that you can make it seem more palatable to buy your thing because, no, you don't use the word buy. No, you use the word invest. Right. (laughs) Honey, we need to invest in a flat screen plasma TV. Look, we're on to you. We know what's going on. No, invest. That's not going to return. That's just going to return you sitting on the couch. That's what's going to happen. But every day we make decisions, decisions about what we value, and what we value are the things that we spend money on. So we may not like it, but the honest truth is where we spend our money shows where our real love and real values are. That is just the way that it is. In fact, that's why if you're here today, this is the first message you've ever heard at College Park Church. Listen, we don't talk about money all the time. We talk about two weeks here, last two weeks. But you'll never understand what giving is all about if you don't understand what's really valuable in life and for us. What's really valuable in life is the reality of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus became poor so that we could become rich. And that's the ground upon which the Bible says we're to give generously. That means that he became our sacrifice for sins. He he took God's wrath so that we could be forgiven. And so people who've been forgiven of the greatest debt in the world, the fact that God would give them grace and then give them stuff, it just makes sense that those kind of people who understand God's grace would be really generous because they know how much they've been given in the first place. So when you understand that, then giving makes sense. If you don't understand the cross and what your sins are and how that all relates, you won't ever understand giving. In fact, what will happen is you'll use giving to try and earn God's favor. And that will never work because the only thing that can earn God's favor is the death of his son. So giving shows us what we're really living for. Here's the second thing. Money demonstrates if we're truly trustworthy. It shows us if we're good stewards. Look at verse 10. Jesus says this, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you, if you have not been faithful, rather, in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? That's a big deal verse right there. Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you what that which is your own? So Jesus says the same thing three different ways. And whenever that happens in the Bible, it's because it's trying to make a really important point. So he approaches it from three different angles. And the point is this, it's very simple, that trustworthiness has to be proven in small areas before greater responsibility is given. Again, this just makes sense. This is just the way that life is. Future performance is directly related to present performance. If you can't perform at a, at a micro level, at a small thing, my goodness, you're not going to be given greater responsibility. That's, that's why there's no, or maybe very few, 22-year-old CEOs. No one comes out of a school or an MBA program and someone says, hey, you want to be like the CEO? No one's going to do that. Why? Because they want to see his personal track record. He wants to see if you've been proven in your activity and your acumen. That's why we have driver's training for 16-year-olds, thank the Lord, so that we can be sure that they know what they're doing before we turn the keys loose and and give them the use of the car. That's that's why you have training wheels on a bike. Because, my goodness, you don't want to send your little daughter out on a road when when she can barely do four wheels, let alone two. Now you know what world I'm in right now. And you're trying to figure out if she can even navigate four wheels, let alone just having two trying to balance. And that's also the, the reason why if... 
You know, you remember that time when you, you got to the point you could leave your kids home alone and you were like, free, no more babysitters. You didn't leave them home alone the first time for eight hours. No, you tried it for 30 minutes, right? You went to the store, came back. Is the house still up? No fires? Everyone's, not, everyone's alive? Okay, good. Let's try 30 minutes, then 40, and then it's a couple hours, and then it's like three weeks. No, you don't do that. So. <laughs> But you, you, you move from smaller increments to larger. So you try small jobs and then training wheels. And you try personal performance before greater responsibility is given. So here's the deal, friends. Listen to this. So the training wheels, the small jobs, the micro opportunities, you know what that is in this context? It's money. So let me just be real blunt. The reality is, is if you can't handle money and you don't, you're not a good steward of money, the reality is you're not going to be able to manage something even greater. The, the tragedy is that there are some people to whom God won't give any more because you've proven that you can't handle what you have. Some of you in the back of your mind are thinking, no, 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 no. You understand, if I just made $70,000 a year, then I could really give. No, you wouldn't. Because you don't give them 40. And getting to 70, you're not going to give anymore. In fact, it's going to be harder at that level. If I just make $100,000, then I'd really give. No, you won't. You won't. I promise you. If I could just make director, just get our kids through college, just, just get our kids through our education, just, 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 it'll always be just, 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 just. It always will be. And the reality is, it's always been just, just, just in your life to this time. The fact of the matter is, is we'll find another um, excuse as to why we shouldn't give. And then the other tragedy is this, is that God won't entrust you with more, whether it's more opportunity or more grace or possibly even more money. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 10 says this. It says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. In other words, there's a direct relationship between you. When you give and prove faithfulness in another area, God now knows that you can handle more. Because is God really going to give you more fuel for your covetous heart? Is He really going to do that? Is He really going to entrust you with more responsibility? Is He really going to entrust you with more opportunity. So there's both a promise and a warning here that God will increase your ability to give. And as well, there's another promise here, is that he will multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, which means that you get to be a part of the domino effect of God's giving. And some of you are seriously missing out on the opportunity to see that when you give, you enter into God's economy and you get to be a part of what He is doing and you get the blessing not only of giving, but you get the blessing of seeing the effects. You get to be on the front row of God's work and see, wow, look what God did, not only for you, but also what He did for others. A couple of months ago, I um, uh, developed a relationship and a friendship with a uh, pastor in the, the Brookside neighborhood named Michael Clarity. He is a uh, pastor of a little church, about 100 people, called uh, Family Bible Church. And uh, they uh, are trying to do the very best with what they've got with limited resources. And I went and took him out to lunch and just began a friendship with him, got a tour of his church. And I saw that in their church they had these kind of old pews. And I said, how many people are you trying to get in here? He said, ah, about 120 people or so. And I said, and these, like, there are like nine or ten pews in, in this area? He said, yeah. And as I walked out of the building, it just, it, I thought of the fact, you know, we got all these chairs that we're not either going to use or I know we're going to use some of them in different spots throughout the building. And so I thought, you know what? Maybe there's a way we can help this guy. So I asked our team, hey, can we, can we give some chairs to Family Bible Church? And so 
Uh, Michael and his team came over and uh, picked up about uh, 40 or 50 chairs, and there they are in, uh, in this church right here. And uh, so we spent some time together. In fact, we're giving him some more um, because the church has continued to grow. And uh, then what was really cool is we had lunch again. And um, and he said to me, you know what else, what also happened? Our people were so blessed by the generosity of your church that rather than taking our pews and selling them, we decided to keep on giving. And so we took the pews that you gave us and we gave them to another church that just had folding chairs in their church. And they are happy as could be that now their building actually looks like a real church. Isn't that great? I mean, and you know what's also cool about that is in the midst of all of that as we're talking and, and we're just, just thinking about how um, we could develop just this mentality of a big K kingdom, we're developing a friendship and a relationship. That's kind of a cheesy photo. That was me with him on my phone. So <laughs> I know it's kind of cheesy, but it illustrates the point that, look, in the process of getting to know people and giving, you get to be a part of what God's doing. And now I've got a friend and a brother, not just because we've given him stuff, but because, you know what, he's serving Jesus and we want to be part of what God's doing, not only here, but also around our city. I just think that's a great thing to be a part of. And why would you want to sit out in that kind of domino effect of being a part of God's kingdom? So money says something. It communicates a great deal. Money uh, tells us what we really live for. It shows us if we're really trustworthy. Here's the third thing. Money surfaces our true allegiance. Here's where it gets even more personal. Jesus says this in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus identifies here that there's this competition that goes on. The battleground is money, and the competition is who are you going to serve, God or money, God or money. Now you might wonder, like I have, so how does money compete with God? I mean, really. How does, how does money compete with God? Or, or how does money become like my master? And then how does that relate to the issue of giving? Because Jesus makes a big deal about this. And I want to suggest to you that the underlying issue in terms of how money competes with God is the issue of trust. It's not just that you worship money. It's that you put your trust in money. Let me explain why. Money brings security. Money solves problems. It makes things happen. It offers to you solutions. Remember the first house you bought and you were first starting out in your career? You had no money. You could hardly hire a plumber. You didn't know. So you, what did you do? You bought magazines. You found books. And you figured out how to do it yourself. Why? Because you didn't have any, you didn't have any other options. Now that you make a little bit more, more money, guess what? You can hire people who actually know what they're doing, right? That's, but, so what? It brings you options. It brings you solutions that you didn't have before. That, this is true personally. This is true at a family level. Friends, this is true at a, even at a national level. You realize, don't you, that national security is directly related to economic prowess. In other words, it costs a lot of money to, to build million-dollar bombs, million-dollar fighter jets. It costs a lot of money. National defense costs a great deal. So if an economy is in the tank, guess what else is going to be in the tank? Defense is going to be in the tank, and so is national security. In fact, I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal this week about um, the question about whether or not Great Britain can still be a player at the table in terms of policing the world because their economy is struggling and they're having to cut defense over and over and over. So big planes, big bombs, and seals that go and kill people, those things cost money, cost a lot of money. And so security is directly tied to the whole issue of financial ability. Money is not just about the stuff that you have. 
It's not just about the things you buy. It is about the thing that the stuff gives you. For example, a good education could give you a good job so you can have insurance when you get sick, so you can have enough money to live in a safe neighborhood. And all that comes from money. Money creates security. It creates trust. And then, if you add on top of that, you start living and hanging around with people who all have the same levels of education, same general income levels and jobs. Most of them have insurance. Then you move out to all the homes begin to look the same with good schools. You start to think that living safely and security, securely is not only helpful and nice, it's also normal. It's easy to forget that most people in the world don't own their homes, let alone with multiple cars who have homes for their cars, right? Called garages. Most people around the world don't have money for education for their kids. So what happens is that money and affluence makes us feel both safe and then also normal. This is what money does. No one ever intends for money to become their trust. It's just the way that money works. Money brings security, it, it becomes our trust, and then the question is, okay, so how do you fight this gravitational pull of money becoming our trust because we like to be secure? The answer is, you give it away. You live by a different economy. So money will create security and it will create trust, and therefore the only antidote to living on this system of this economic idea of I want money so I'm safe is to give it away so you demonstrate I really don't trust in the economy of the United States, I really don't trust in my employer, what I really trust is in God. That's the difference. A God who you cannot see, but a God who owns it all. So let me just be really blunt, if you don't give, you really don't trust God. You don't. You're trying to protect yourself. You're trying to, to, and the issue isn't just greed. No, the issue is you're, you're trying to protect. You're trying to be secure. So serving money doesn't have to look like you're a workaholic or you're like a miser like Scrooge or you have a bunch of stuff. No, it can just simply be finding security and stuff rather than God. It's that simple. And frankly, it's that easy. It's that scary. In fact, I think that as we get to the core problem, I think the real problem behind giving or a lack of giving is not greed. A lot of times you'll hear people say that we're greedy, we're greedy, we're greedy. Well, maybe some of us are. I don't think that's the big problem. I think that may be a problem. I don't think it's the problem. Rather, I think the other issue, probably even a greater issue, is the issue of fear. By that I mean the anxiety that we won't have enough now or we won't have enough in the future. And in the end, money creates security and giving then relies on trust. And the Bible has a lot to say about this, about God's trustworthiness for us to be able to give. In fact, this is the argument of the parable. The man anticipated the future. He endured a short-term loss, believing that he would have a long-term gain. And what's going on here is underneath the economic principles of our country is another economic principle, spiritual economy, in which God is worthy to be trusted. Let me show you this from a couple places. First Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. That's a security trust issue right there. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So the issue of trust. What do you trust in? Do you trust in riches, or do you trust in God? Here's the second one. Second Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So it may not mean that he gives you more money, but he gives you sufficient grace so you can live in your means. And then he says, remember, God has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower 
and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. So the question is, do you believe this is true? If you believe it's true, then you would give. If you don't believe it's true, you won't give. So the proof is, do you believe this or not, then give. If you don't believe it, then you won't give. So if you don't give, you don't believe this. You follow? I hope that made sense, because I, I think it did. Third, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you believe this? Then give. And the question really comes down to, are you going to believe the promise of what money offers you, security, safety? I mean, we even talk about this. We name um, entitlement programs social security. We call the medical program Medicare. We, we want safety, we want security, we want assurance. And I hope that one of the things that's, that maybe happened to you in the last five years, as it has to me, is that we've learned that it's pretty easy for things to fall apart financially. I mean, I look at the housing market really differently. When I look at a dollar bill and I, I see the letters FDIC, FDIC insured, I smile. I'm like, yeah, whatever, right? Backed by the good faith of the American government. I don't know what that means anymore, right? Or I understand now why my grandfather hid substantial portions of savings in cash in his house. I'm not suggesting you necessarily do that, but I understand now better that economies hang by a thread. And what happens is that God invites us to to be a part of a different economy. He invites us to invest in a spiritual economy that, that relies on God's goodness and his ability to care for his children. And when you really understand and when you really believe this and you really take God at his word and you really jump on the opportunity to give, you see the beauty of what happens when God shows up and he's true to his word. So therefore, the thing that we ought to fear is not giving away too much, but giving too little. We ought not fear giving away too much, but sowing way too little. Now, for those of you who in your mind have a lot of tension going on right now, I, I know that this raises a lot of questions. This living on a different economy, like how much do you save? How much do you put away for retirement? How much should you borrow? And, and I don't know. I don't know what the answers are to those questions. And I don't think there's a particular answer that would be good. Even if I could tell you, save this amount percentage and do this, I think that would quickly become legalism. And some of you right now feel safe and you shouldn't feel safe. You've been at 10% for your entire life. It's become easy. It's become rote. And you need to get off the mark from 10%. Others of you, you hardly give anything to the cause of Christ, let alone to your own church or some other uh, spiritual entity. And the fact of the matter is you claim that you trust God, but the fact is every single month that goes by, you prove you don't. And you can say all day long you trust God, but you really don't. When push comes to shove, you can't clearly demonstrate that you really do trust in God. Instead, you'd rather feel safe, you'd rather feel secure, and Jesus says you can't serve God in money. Only you can personally wrestle through whether or not you find security in God or find security in money. I remember years ago when I felt like God was asking me to begin giving on my gross salary, not my net. And it was a small thing, but it was a big thing. It meant a significant increase in my, my giving, and at the time it seemed like a really big stretch. And I remember wrestling, if I do this, I'm going to have to change some other things. And the battle in my heart was, if I do this, I really have to change how I spend my money. And there was a significant battle going on. It had become an issue of trust for me, even though it wasn't very much money. And though making through making that decision in that particular time it was clear that this was a faith challenge for me and here's the thing i just want to encourage you to realize that your giving needs to have a faith element built into it that on a regular basis you ask the lord what do you want me to give where do you want me to give and how much do you want me to sacrifice some of you will push back and you'll say well mark 
look, isn't it possible to give away so much that you can be foolish and neglect your family? I mean, surely it's possible that you could give and give and give and give and give away so much so that your family would be neglected and hurt. And you know what? As I've taught about this for the last 16 years, I have heard that pushback. And here's my pushback on that pushback. Show me that man or woman. Because I've yet to find them. Instead, what I can show you are countless people who gave and gave and gave. And they're some of the happiest, most fulfilled people in all the world. Because I think that person is a straw man. A straw man that we create. Because I think we use that as a way to not take God at his word. And to really see if God will be true to what he says in terms of if we seek first the kingdom of God, then we'll have everything that we need. So I don't know what you have to do with your money. I I don't know all the dynamics of what you need to think about, what you need to pray through. I, I don't know where your faith line is. But what I do know is this, is that God invites us to put our faith in him. And there are few things, friends, that test our faith like giving. Very few. Every time you give, what you're doing, you're embracing a short-term loss for eternal gain. You're anticipating what's coming in the future. You're operating on a, on a basic premise that our world operates on. If you want long-term gain, you've got to endure short-term loss. And from a spiritual perspective, if you know the beauty of what the eternal benefit is at the end, you know the power of what it means to invest in the glorious kingdom, then wouldn't it make sense that people who know this reality would be zealous for short-term loss in this life because of the beauty of what it means? See, the reality is money speaks, and it says a lot more than we realize. And giving by faith makes a very clear statement. Giving by faith says, God, I trust you. I trust you. Every single week, every other week, every month, when you do something and you give, you give evidence and you say to your heart, we can trust the Lord. We can trust the Lord. And for some of you, that's the scariest thing in all the world to know you're not in control, but you can trust in the Lord. And yet it's the most important thing for you to do because God is worthy of your trust and your money will show you that if you simply give. So Father, I pray... You'd help us in our giving and our generosity. We are often a fearful people. Um, We live in a constant state of trying to take care of our needs. We have a barrage of opportunities to buy things that we know we don't really need. And we have this challenge to really demonstrate that our trust is in you. And so, God, we pray that you would empower a new level of generosity that would spring from our people, that they would meet the needs of one another, of other ministries, that we could see the the power of what it means to be a part of your activity. And then, Lord, we're going to look forward to the way that you show up and demonstrate that your word can be trusted. So help us, Lord. We, We believe, but help our unbelief. We're at times afraid, and we pray you'd help us to have courage. Give us courage to give. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.